the third Sunday of Advent. Advent, as we've talked about before, is simply a word that means coming. And it's a very, very ancient Christmas tradition. It goes back hundreds and thousands of years, actually, in which Christians all over the world celebrate three comings. The one, of course, we think about with Christmas is Jesus coming to earth. We call that the incarnation. That's one of the comings. But as Christians, we know that Jesus is going to come again a second time. That's his second coming. That's still future. But the third coming is actually Jesus coming into our own hearts. And that, of course, is present. So we have the past, the present, and the future. So as we anticipate his coming on Christmas Day, which, of course, is his traditional birthday, we don't know what day Jesus was actually born, but we celebrate it on the 25th of December. And so in preparation for that, we churches all over the world light candles. The first candle we lit was the one we called the prophet's candle. And that's the candle that reminds us uh, that years and years, actually thousands of years, um, 2,000 years before Jesus came to this earth, there were prophecies that began about the coming of the Messiah. And so this is the candle that reminds us of the prophets and of hope. Last week, we did a candle that's different than most candles, uh, most Advent celebrations, because we called that the ancestors candle. Because if you look at the Christmas story, or even the beginning of the New Testament, it begins with a genealogy. Jesus had roots. His roots go back, of course, to Abraham, to David, and a whole host of people. And we find those genealogies in Matthew and in Luke. But today we're going to turn to the third candle, and this one is Mary's candle. Obviously, Mary is extremely, extremely important in the Christmas story. And so today we're going to look at, at, at her in what's the passage of Scripture that's known as the Annunciation. When Gabriel, the angel, came to Mary and told her that she was going to be the one who would give birth to the Messiah. Now, I, I don't suspect anyone in this room today has any idea, except maybe me to a little bit because I've studied it all week long, you have no idea how famous Mary is. Um, there is no one in human history, no, certainly no woman, I would say without a doubt the most famous male in human history is Jesus. And no question, the most famous female in human history is Mary. But you might not know how famous she really is. I think I'll surprise you today. First of all, to make it very common, Mary is the most popular female name in the United States of America. This coming week, we are going to give honor to the, the life of Mary Hutchison, a Mary. Miriam, who often plays uh, at the keyboard, that's also a, a, a derivative from the name Mary. In fact, Mary, over the last 100 years, is twice as common as the second most common name in America for women, which happens to be Patricia. That's number two. But number one, more than twice as many, is Mary, the most famous name of, for women in our society today. If you went on the Internet and you said, what is the most common Internet um, search for women, you'd come up with? Not Mary. Madonna. Which one? We don't know. <laughs> but that's number one. That's the number one uh, internet search for women would be Madonna. Of course, some of them 
Madonna, the musician, and others, of course, the Madonna, Mary. You may not know this. In fact, I suspect very few of you know this. But 25% roughly of our world's population are Muslim people. That number is 1.9 billion people. And did you know that Mary is highly regarded in Islam? In fact, in the Quran, Mary is mentioned more than 50 times. In fact, one entire chapter, or they call them surahs in the Quran, is devoted to Miriam. She is considered to be the greatest woman in the history of mankind or humankind. And the Quran refers to Mary more than the New Testament does. You probably didn't know that. So 25% of the world's population who were Islamic Muslims, Mary is obviously the most famous woman by far. Among Hindus, Hindus are 1.1 billion people on earth, 14% of the world's population. Mary is venerated among the Hindu people as some of them as, as, as a God figure. They have little shrines to Mary in many Hindu homes. She's very highly regarded in Indian society. There are even pilgrimages to Marian shrines among Roman Catholics or Christians who number some 2.2 billion people on earth, 30% of the world's population would regard themselves in one sense or another as Christian. Obviously, Mary is extremely, extremely important. But what we're probably a little bit familiar with is the veneration of Mary among Roman Catholics. Let me give you a little bit of background on that. If you do a word cloud on Mary, you will see some of the various names that she has called throughout history. She's called the mother of Christians, the star of the sea, the mother of the redeemer, the mother of mercy, our lady, holy Mary, the first disciple, lady of lords, the queen of heaven, the mother of God's creatures, the mother of angels, and the throne of wisdom. Those are just a few. There are many, many more of that. Those are just a few of the names you would see if you did a word cloud on the internet on the name Mary. From earliest times, it began in, as far as we know, in around the year 165, Mary was for the first time called to our knowledge, the second Eve. That's the name they gave to her. And then in the third century, we have recorded prayers that began to Mary. Christians started to pray to Mary as old as the third century. Around the year 320, she was called for the first time Theotokos, or the mother of God. And then in the fourth century, they started to call her the mother of the church. And then from the time of St. Augustine in the, fourth, in the 400s, she then, they started to propound in the Roman Catholic Church that Mary was sinless. She was sinless in how she lived her life. She was, as, and this is from Pope Pius in 1943, Mary was personally sinless, free from all sin, original or personal sin. To get rid of her original sin, that's where you have what's called the Immaculate Conception. The Immaculate Conception is not the birth of Jesus, that's the birth of Mary. Among Roman Catholics, they believe that Mary was conceived without original sin. 
so that since Mary had no original sin and no actual sin, you have a theological problem. One, because remember the Bible verse, the wages of sin is, if you have no sin, you cannot die. So it was as recently as 1950, Pope Pius promulgated the assumption of Mary. She was simply taken up into heaven in a bodily state because she had no sin. Therefore, she could not die. Obviously, she was called the perpetual virgin. We, of course, call her the Virgin Mary. We acknowledge that she was not, she had never been sexually involved with a man before Jesus was born. But in Roman Catholic theology, she was a virgin before Jesus was born, during Jesus' birth, and after Jesus' birth. The during Jesus' birth refers to the fact that Mary was not born normal. I mean, Jesus was not born normally. He was not born in the normal birth process, nor through cesarean secession. He simply popped out of her. That's traditional Roman Catholic teaching, so as she would not be, quote-unquote, defiled. Then, of course, you have the fact that since Mary was the mother of Jesus and Jesus is our Redeemer, she's the co-redemptrix. She redeemed humanity along with Jesus. And then, of course, she's the co-mediatrix. She mediates between ourselves and God. And, of course, we can go on and on and on. You probably have heard some of these ideas, but most human beings have no idea how incredibly important Mary is except perhaps to Mary herself. Because I wonder if Mary was here with us today, she would, what would she think about all of the hullabaloo that surrounds her that has developed through the years? What is it about Mary that God noticed that he would pick her out of all the people who have lived on this planet, this one woman, would be the one selected to be the mother of the Messiah? It is that question we're going to try to answer today. And I titled this message from the song that maybe you've heard, a beautiful song entitled, Mary, did you know? Mary, did you know that you would be the mother of the Messiah? And the question is obviously, no, she didn't know. But what we're going to ponder today is, What are the traits that Mary possessed that caused God or that God developed in her that she would be the chosen instrument of Jesus himself? And all these things I've said to you already this morning, a lot of that is stuff that's been made up through the years. Tradition tells us about it. But what does the scripture tell us about Mary? That's what we're going to turn today. So let's look at the, um, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 26. The first question I'm going to ask us is this question. Mary, did you know how spectacularly God can use ordinary people? That's the first question. Because what we're going to find out, first of all, in as the, the Gospel of Luke, Luke the doctor, he's a medical doctor who writes this passage of Scripture he sets the scene. And when he sets the scene, all that you can say about this scene is, she's just an ordinary woman. Here's what the Bible says. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel 
to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. There's the setting. Now let's take that from the top. In the sixth month. As you know, Mary and Elizabeth, Elizabeth is the mother of John the Baptist, are related. They're related. Elizabeth became pregnant though she was older in age, not like Sarah in the Old Testament with Abraham, but she was older, beyond childbearing age normally, and she became pregnant. Six months before the events we're about to see in the Bible. So John the Baptist, therefore, is about six months older than Jesus. Gabriel. Gabriel is one of only two angels that are mentioned by name in the Bible. Gabriel and Michael. I guess there's a third one. He's the fallen angel, Lucifer. But you have really two archangels mentioned in the Bible, Gabriel and Michael, and Gabriel obviously is a very, very important angel. God sent Gabriel to Galilee. Now, Galilee is is not the hot spot. Galilee is the not respected portion of the nation. Galilee to a Jew in Jesus' day, is sort of like Mississippi. <laughs> Sorry to use that. To, you know, one of the states, one of our poorest states, one of the states that is not highly regarded, so we think. So we think. Though, by the way, when I, a study was done by Time Magazine, if, if proportionately, though um, Mississippi is the poorest state in the country, and by IRS records, it's the most generous state in the, com- in the country. According to their income, the most generous people in the world live in Mississippi. Keep that in mind, by the way. Things are sometimes the opposite of we think. And by the way, one of the wealthiest states in the country, number two, is Miss Massachusetts. It's the least generous state in the whole United States. So oftentimes the poor are the people who give the best statistically. And Mississippi would be like that. and Maybe Galilee as well. And then it mentions the town of Nazareth. Nazareth was a little tiny agricultural center, perhaps had about 100 people in it. What town near here? I drive from here to Casper and there's not much there. There's a little town that has 10 people on the population sign. But um, Shoshone would be a huge metropolis next to Nazareth. It's a little tiny town of 100 people. Everyone obviously knew everyone else in the town. There was a big town nearby. It's called Sepphoris. That was the Roman town. But Nazareth was nothing. Just a little agricultural community of 120 to 150 people. Remember when Jesus first met the man Nathaniel? And, uh, and, and, or before that, and, and they say that we've, we've met the man who's the Messiah and he comes from Nazareth. And Nathaniel goes, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? So it's like, can anything good come from, you name it, a town of 100 people around here? There's nothing there. That's the town of Nazareth. Uh, to a, a virgin, to a virgin, who's engaged to be married. We don't know Mary's age, but the oldest I've seen 
is 15. And the normal age they give her is 12. Of course, in that society, you became a man or a woman around age 12 at the time of your bar or bat mitzvah. And uh, so she's, she's an adult in that society, but somewhere between 12 and 15 years of age. She's obviously a very, very young, young woman. She's engaged. Typically in that society, as in some society, many societies today, for the men, they're older because they have to put together a dowry. They have to collect a lot of money before they can get married. So the men are usually quite a bit older. And who's the man she marries? Ordinary Joe. Ordinary Joe is simply a, 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 a blue-collar worker. He's a carpenter by trade, not any hot shot or anything like that. Dorothy Sayers, the famous writer, said this, Mary was young and inexperienced, a female in a male-dominated society. She lived in Nazareth, not the holy city of Jerusalem. She was pregnant and unmarried, open to rumor and conjecture, and probably illiterate. You see, everything we learn about Mary from the setting screams ordinary, average, unremarkable, undistinguished, unexceptional. Nazareth was not a noteworthy place at all. Galilee was Israel's backwater. Joseph was just an average dude, a blue-collar worker, and Mary was one of the most common names in all of Israel then and in the United States today. Mary, could you ever have imagined that a peasant girl from backwater Nazareth in Galilee of the Gentiles would be visited by the archangel Gabriel, who was sent by God to tell you that you would become the mother of the Messiah. Would you ever have guessed that? You see, the Jewish women of that society, and even Jewish women to this day, they, they pray and they long for that I may be the mother of the Messiah. But of course, you don't really think that'll happen to you. Well, Mary didn't think that either. A man who wrote a, a commentary on the, the, this passage named Daryl Bach, he said this, Mary reflects the person whom God unexpectedly chooses to use. She brings no outstanding credentials to the task and lives on the edge of the nation. She brings nothing on her resume other than her availability and willingness to serve. But those characteristics are the most basic ones anyone can offer to God. You see, our society almost today is almost repulsed by the ordinary. Everyone on social media wants to be some hotshot. You want to get your picture out there. You want to get as many likes as you possibly can. You want everyone to know about your personality, your identity, your thoughts, your sexual pre preferences, etc. You want the whole world to know that because no one wants to be ordinary. We all want our 15 minutes of fame. I read Time Magazine and People Magazine every 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 week. And Time Magazine does its 100 most influential people and the person of the year. And People Magazine does its 50 most beautiful people in the world and the sexiest man alive and all of these things because we're so enamored by 
the unusual and the spectacular and the successful and the attractive and all these other things. James Dobson, in one of his books entitled Hide and Seek, says this, From the moment we are born, children experience an unfortunate value system that reserves respect and esteem for only a select few. In this world in which we live today, only a few people are regarded as valuable, and they get that value typically from the day they're born. You look at a little baby and say, oh, what a beautiful baby. And when other babies aren't so beautiful, you just, oh, it's a baby. (laughs) From the day they're born, we're making distinctions based on nothing but what we think they look like. Beauty, brains, brawn, success exists, bucks, wealth, your ability to entertain others. These are the, the, the people who we regard as successful and We all want to be a part of that. You see, it's almost as if we live in a world today in which the worst thing that can ever happen to us is to be ordinary. Again, this man, Daryl Bach, wrote this. This example of God's unpretentiousness is an attitude that we as his children should possess. We might expect great things from God and anticipate that he will work through the great in society, but God shows his greatness by working with anyone on the street who is willing to be used by him. God's approach stands in contrast to the type of credentials our work, our world looks for and honors. Service is generally given low ratings in our world. We would prefer to have other people serve us. This perspective tends to make us focus on ourselves and in fact, often subverts one of the activities that can bring the most satisfaction in life. When we simply serve ourselves, we lose an important part of who we are to be. We're made to be servants of God. That's our highest and best possible calling. God often uses people who are not great in the eyes of the world to do great things here on earth. Mary and Joe of First Baptist Church, please never underestimate the eternal impact that you can have through living an ordinary, godly life. You will never know the spectacular and eternal things God might do through you. One of the children in, our, in the children's church right now could be the next Billy Graham. You don't know that. They could be there right now. Here in the little town of Riverton, we don't know that. But that's oftentimes God's way. Wordsworth said this, The best portion of a good man's life is his little, nameless, unencumbered acts of kindness and of love. Oftentimes that no one ever notices. You see, Mary was just an ordinary Mary in the backwater part of Israel. But God realized she's no ordinary soul. She's spectacular. So the first part set the scene. And now the next part of the passage is going to record a dialogue that takes place between Mary and Gabriel. And I asked this question, Mary, did you know how favorably God views humble hearts? Look at the interaction. 
the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Now, if we were in a Roman Catholic church today and we read this in Latin, you would find the words are Ave Maria. That's where that famous song comes from. Those are the first words that you find here. But we believe that Mary, and Mary, from this text of Scripture and all through the Bible, is a recipient of grace. It's Jesus who is the giver of grace. But Mary says, um, Gabriel says, God's favor is upon you. And, and, and what's her response? What? What? Now, how would you respond if a very, very important person you had never met before greeted you in the manner in which Gabriel greeted Mary? You might think, hey, you got the wrong address. I mean, this is, after all, this is, this is Nazareth. This is, this is Riverton. Come on. Or you might, you might be afraid. I'd be afraid because remember, angels don't have wings and they just didn't get their hair done at the beauty parlor. They're frightening in the Bible. They're frightening creatures. We find that every time that we meet them, you'd be afraid. You'd, you'd, you'd duck away in fear and embarrassment. Or maybe in, with false humility, you'd say, oh, no, not me, not me, not me. Or maybe along with Ray Charles and the Pepsi jingle, you'd say, hey, you got the right one, baby. Uh-huh. Maybe you'd say that. Who knows? But that's not what Mary did. What Mary did, she said, she was greatly troubled by this. Well, why was she troubled? Well, she was troubled because she knew herself. And she said, First of all, why would an angel visit me in Nazareth, in Galilee? I'm a peasant. And you're here to tell me that God has highly favored me? What did she have? In the passage that follows our passage today, we have what's called the Magnificat. Mary writes a poem. And in her poem, she uses, she says over and over again how God shows his favor on those who are humble. And he, he, the, those who are rich and famous, he doesn't show his favor in the same way. But if you look through the Bible, you'll find that the people who know God well are universally, no exceptions, universally humble people. Moses. When, when God approaches Moses and says, Moses, you're the one I have chosen to, to liberate God's people from slavery in Egypt. Moses' response in Exodus 3 is, who am I? Why would you choose me? Remember Gideon? One of the judges, God says, God says, Gideon, you've been raised up to lead God's people against Midian. And this is what Gideon says. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And you pick me? Remember Isaiah? When he is given a vision of the almighty God, what are his first words? Woe is me. I have no business being in the presence of the holy God. Remember John the Baptist, when people were declaring that he was the Messiah, he says, no, I'm not. I'm simply a voice. I'm simply the bridegroom. I am not even worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. That's who I am. 
Remember Peter, when he's encountered by the miraculous catch of fish, and he first gets his glimpse of who Jesus might be. He goes, here's his words. Get away from me. I am a sinful man. And remember Paul's words. Paul writes in 1 Timothy, he said, there's, here's a trustworthy statement. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. I am the worst person that's ever been on this planet. Now, you got to be careful. What does humility mean? Humility does not mean putting yourself down. Humility does not mean having a a bad self-concept. Humility does not mean having an inferiority complex. That's not humility. That's garbage. That's wrong. We do the opposite of that. What is humility? Humility is having an accurate sense of who I really am in light of the holiness of God. Any of us who had any any ability to see the true God, we'd be on our faces real fast because we're so far from that. Here's what Paul wrote in Romans 12. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think of yourself with sober judgment. God does not say put yourself down. He does not say that. That's wrong. We don't put ourselves down. He says, have sober judgment. You see, authentic humility is derived from three sources. One, we have a sense of the holiness of God. Number two, we have a personal recognition of our own sinfulness. And number three, we have an appreciation of God's amazing grace. If you have those, that is a humble person. C.S. Lewis made a famous statement. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. You don't think you're bad or or you don't think less of yourself. You just don't think about yourself a lot because life is not about you. Life is about Jesus. It's about God. It's about God using us for other people. How do you know if you're humble? Well, Proverbs chapter 27 tells us the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold. But man is tested by the praise he receives. You see, that's what Mary got. Praise from the highest possible source, straight from God through Gabriel. Here she's praying, you highly favored one, the Lord is with you. And what does she say? Are you sure? Are you sure? (laughs) You got the right one? Someone wrote this. Humility has been called the first, second, and third essential of the Christian life. There are few more favorable character traits to the God of the universe than humility. And Mary had it in an incredible way. Mary, did you know how highly God values humility? Well, the text goes from the setting to the beginning of the dialogue with Gabriel, and now it's going to turn to the surreal. Now, Gabriel is going to tell Mary some things that just make you go, uh, uh, this is not possible. Besides, if it's possible, it's really bad. Because now Mary's going to have to answer the question, Mary, did you know how highly God values honest questions? Watch Mary at work. But the angel said to her, verse 30, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. 
He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? Let's go back to the top. Do not be afraid. Right. In the presence of an angel, don't be afraid. Yeah, right. You have found favor with God. Really? Why would God favor me? You will conceive in your womb and bear a son. How would you know? This is before ultrasound and amniocentesis. You shall give him the name, Jesus. Wait a minute, G- wait a minute, Gabriel. I get to name my son. You don't. His name will be Jesus, which means God is salvation. He will be great. Well, I can see Mary saying, well, sure. Every parent thinks their child is great. There's no, that's pretty obvious. He will be called the son of the most high. No way, Jose. How, how could anyone be called that? He will have the throne of his father, David. Well, finally, something makes sense, Mary might say to that. He will have this throne forever. No, that's not possible. You can't be a king forever. And so she asks the pregnant question. I'm a virgin. Or literally, the words there are, I've never known a man. This can't happen. You see, Gabriel's message to Mary included a whole host of bombshells. She's mega frightened, and Gabriel tells her not to be afraid. She's an ordinary peasant girl, and she's told, been told by an archangel she's found favor with God. She's a virgin, and she's told she's going to be having a child. She's informed of the gender and the name of her child, and told that her child will be great, a king who will reign forever. Mary, did you know that God actually appreciates a heart that wrestles with legitimate doubts. You see, Mary had an engaged mind. She was prepared to ask tough questions. Mary was not afraid to voice her real concerns to God. She was not a spiritual fruitcake, an airhead. She wasn't a spiritualizer. She wasn't a naive follower. She wasn't a person of blind faith. She wasn't a Pollyanna. By the way, I think you've heard me say, I deeply dislike the phrase people of faith. First of all, it's a blanket term that puts all kinds of religions and superstitions into the same soup, which I don't like. Second, it's often used to people who are spiritual fruitcakes. You know, the people who don't believe in science and they're spiritual fruitcakes, so they believe in pie in the sky, by and by, and they have blind faith. That's not what faith means. It's a very ridiculous misdefinition of what the Bible means by faith. Faith is actually reasonable trust in the promises of God. Interestingly, the Bible is full of people who wrestled with legitimate doubts. Moses was called by God to lead his people, as I said. And remember the interaction? Moses says, "Um, who am I that I should go? Why would you pick me? And then what if people ask me, what's your name? What am I supposed to tell them? And what if they won't believe me when I tell them? And by the way, Lord, I've never been eloquent. I can't do this job. And why don't you find somebody else? He didn't want his job. He was full of doubts. But God says, no, no, you're the one I've chosen. Remember Gideon? (laughs) He did the same kind of thing. Remember Jeremiah, the great prophet? 
God says, you're going to be the spokesman. And he says, no, I can't be because I don't know how to speak and I'm only a child. Over and over again, the people that God called, they had legitimate doubts. They raised them with God. Look at what Job did. And God was very patient to answer their questions, their legitimate doubts. Alfred Lord Tennyson made this famous quote, there lives more faith in honest doubt, believe me, than in half the creeds. There's such a thing as honest doubt. You see, people never need to be afraid or ashamed of honest doubts. However, there's a fine line between honest and dishonest doubts. Dishonest doubts include rationalizations and blame shifting and covering up your skin, your sin and hidden agendas. There are many other such things. But you see, Mary had legitimate questions, honest doubts, and she brought them to God and God's never opposed to that. Well, finally, Mary, did you know how much God treasures simple trust? Here's how the passage ends. Verse 35. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Gabriel, because Mary had these honest doubts, she said, God, uh, Gabriel, I, I, this can't happen because I'm a virgin. I can't have a child. And so Gabriel starts answering. He said, here's God's method. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. Now, thankfully, the Bible doesn't go into detail as to what that means because no one has a clue. But it, it, it's not sorted. Something God did there, we don't know exactly. And the outcome is, the one born to you, Mary, will be the Son of God, a holy child. That will be the outcome. And you're probably thinking to yourself, Mary, this is impossible. How can anyone become pregnant from God? Well, here's the proof. Your own relative Elizabeth, who could not have children, so you thought. She's six months pregnant. And Mary is soon to make a trip down to Jerusalem area to visit her and find out, in fact, that she's pregnant. And remember what happens? When Mary walks into the presence of Elizabeth, six months or seven months pregnant by this point, the baby inside of, of Elizabeth leaps. But of course, I, I call that personhood, by the way. Already in the womb, six or seven months along, John the Baptist recognized he was in the presence of the one who would bear the Messiah. That's called consciousness. That's one of the great arguments for pro-life that we stand for as Christians. What will be the power behind it? Nothing is impossible with God. And how does Mary respond? I don't know if I Do you know what this means? This means a terribly difficult life for her. And she doesn't even have a clue how bad it's going to be. She said, I'll do it. She's not even yet married, but it could have cost her a lot. Just think, just think of all the questions that must have flooded into her mind with this last statement. First of all, who in the world is the Holy Spirit? She probably didn't know what that was. And how will this 
Holy Spirit come upon me. Uh, That's kind of gross. What does it mean that the power of the Most High will overshadow me? Doesn't this mean that people will think that I've been promiscuous with Joseph? How will I handle the reactions of people being called a slut with the stares and the shame and the accusations and being branded an adulteress? What if Joseph rejects me and decides to divorce me? How will I take care of myself and my baby? I suppose I could be killed for bearing a baby out of wedlock. And how will my son be able to handle the pressure of being called illegitimate? And What will it be like to raise the son of God? Can you imagine what she was going through her mind? And still she said, I'll do it. Wow, Mary, amazing. She's not the only one. There was this man named Abram who lived in Ur, one of the most sophisticated civilizations in the world at the time. And how we don't know, but God communicated to this man, Abram, that you're supposed to get up from your country and go to a place where I will show you. Nobody did that back then. And what did Abram do? He got up and went. And God said, Abram, you believed in me. You are the epitome for all human history of what it means to be a righteous man. You took me at my word. Wow. Our favorite Bible verse, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes, trusts him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Mary, why did God choose this particular woman? to be the most famous woman in the history of the world, by far. She was ordinary, but ordinarily godly. She was truly, genuinely, sincerely humble. She was willing to ask honest and tough questions. She had an active mind, and she had simple trust in God. And by the way, what does it take to be, as the Bible calls it, saved? What does it take? You have to acknowledge your sin. That's an honest, humble soul who will do that. You have to believe that God has offered a gift of righteousness that we don't deserve through what Jesus did on the cross. That's called simple trust. And then you confess your allegiance to Jesus and you're saved. How do we respond? Pursue faithfulness to God, not fame. Fame is transitory. It will not last Faithfulness to God is eternal. Pursue faithfulness to God, not fame. Peter wrote this, Humble yourself before the almighty hand of God, and he will lift you up. Let God elevate us, not elevate ourselves. Do not be afraid to be honest with God, even with the sordid things in your heart. And simply as the hymn says, trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Someone wrote this. When man reaches for God, we call it religion. When God reaches for man, we call it Christmas. Big difference. I'd like to end this morning by just, I wish I could sing it for you because it's a beautiful song. Check it out on YouTube if you can. Mary, did you know? But listen to these words. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy 
will save our sons and daughters. Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you've delivered will soon deliver you. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will give sight to a blind man? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will calm a storm with his hand? Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? And when you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God. Mary, did you know that the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the dead will rise again, the lame will leap, the dumb will speak, the praises of the lamb. Mary, did you know that your baby boy is the Lord of all creation? Did you know that your baby boy will one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? The sleeping child you're holding is the great I am. Mary, did you know? Let's pray. Wow, what a woman. What a gift to humanity this Mary is, Father. You gave us this precious, incredible woman to be the the mother of Jesus. Thank you for the simple but profoundly important traits she, she embodied. And may we, may we embody them as well. May our trust in you be deep. May our humility be sincere. May our honesty be just palpable. And may we, Heavenly Father, whether we're ordinary or, or extraordinary, seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.